We're launching in a new series, In My Place Condemned He Stood, The Biblical Pattern of the Atonement. The title this morning kind of speaks my heart. The Subtle Shift. How the Downsizing of the Atonement is Affecting the Evangelical Church. I need to not apologize, but explain. This morning's message is going to lay a foundation. What I want to do this morning is show you in the first 80% of my time. So don't panic if after 80% you hear me say point number one. I've got two quick wrap-up points. The 80% won't be typically sermonic in the sense that I'm not going to deal right away with a biblical text, which I always do. I want to show the need. I want to try and show you the problem with a lot of quotes coming out of prominent evangelical leaders so that when I say, I think there's a big shift taking place, I can show you where the shift is and how it's happening. So that's the first part of the message, which is a little bit different. But I think we are at a crisis point. I don't think that's overstating it in the evangelical church. I know there's always been squabbles over silly little things, you know, contemporary worship, traditional worship, the, the little domestic skirmishes in the family of God. It's almost endless. And while they're sad, they really are sad, they're, they're not as devastating as what's happening here. This is different. There's something darker on the horizon. What's being questioned out loud with very prominent voices in what used to be called the evangelical church. What we're hearing used to come just more from atheists and antagonists of the cause of Christ. It's the nature of the atonement, the work of the cross, the kind of nerve center of the Christian faith. This is so different from the endless debate over hymns versus Hillsong and Blah, 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 blah. Like, who has time for all that stuff? I want to open, as I said, with a little bit more background than I usually take. I want to just sort of briefly circle over the kind of debate that is percolating amongst a lot of voices. Let me read you this quote before I tell you who it's from. This writer says, the fact is, the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he never even committed. Understandably, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious. It's a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the fact that God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by Father God toward humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. That's quite a statement. Now, there have always been people saying things like that, but these words don't come from Deepak Chopra or Eckhart Tolle. 
They come from the lips of perhaps the most prominent Baptist pastor in the UK. They're from Stephen Chalk and Brian Mann in their book, it's not new anymore, The Lost Message of Jesus. That book is heavily endorsed by Brian McLaren, surprise, surprise. And those words have become kind of the theme song of progressive leaders all across North America as well. In fact, Brian McLaren, in one of his earlier popular books, The Story We Find Ourselves In, it's kind of a half novel, half story, he places, he places his own view, Brian McLaren's own view of the atonement, in the words of the main character in his book, Neo. And Neo outlines the difficulties of the old substitutionary view of the atonement, saying it, it fails to address the real question, why, if God is loving and wants to forgive us, why doesn't he just do that? Why doesn't he just forgive us? How can punishing an innocent person make things better? There you are. McLaren's fictitious character, Neo, he then expounds his more satisfactory view of what happened on the cross. Listen, when I think about the cross, I think it's all about God's agony being made visible. You know, the pain of forgiving, the pain of absorbing, how that absorbing takes place without substitution is never addressed in his book. The pain of forgiving, the pain of absorbing, absorbing the betrayal and foregoing any revenge. So there's no divine retribution of any kind against our sin. Jesus doesn't carry the wrath of God. Neo continues, when I think about the cross, I think about just the pain of risking your heart that it might be hurt again for the sake of love. I don't even know what that sentence means. The pain of the very worst moment when the beloved has been least worthy of forgiveness, but stands in the worst need of it. So in other words, it's, it's what you're seeing on the cross is the cost of loving others. It's not easy to love. Sometimes it costs a lot of abuse and suffering to extend love to needy people. And goodness knows we can all be more self-giving when we love people. Well, that's the message of the cross. Now, remember, these are some of the largest selling books in used-to-be bookstores, now mostly online centers. Our, our evangelical churches are devouring this idea. Brian McLaren has a book called Everything Must Change, and he contrasts the conventional view of the atonement with the more progressive view that he endorses. Here's the conventional view. Jesus says, in essence, if you want to be among those specifically qualified to escape being forever punished for your sins in hell, well, you must repent of your individual sins 
and believe that my father punished me on the cross so he won't have to punish you. Only if you believe this will you go to heaven when the earth is destroyed and everyone else is banished in hell. This is the good news of the gospel. Here's the progressive view that he endorses. Jesus says, I've been sent by God with this good news that God loves humanity, even in its lostness and sin. And God graciously invites everyone and anyone just to turn from his or her current path. Why we need to turn from the path isn't explained anywhere. Need to turn from his or her current path and just follow a new way. Trust me. Become my disciple. You'll be transformed. You'll participate in the transformation of the world, which is possible. This is the good news. Now, certainly that second view is carefully worded to sound a lot more inviting than the first view. I get it. All the nasty New Testament words, hell, punished, banned, destroyed, that's all taken away. This is very clever writing. It's designed to make the tradition of you look sort of Nazi-like. Notice especially the way in the second view, McLaren's theory makes the death of Jesus on the cross. It's an invitation. I have been sent by God with this good news. God graciously invites everyone and anyone to turn from his or her current path and follow a new way. Now, why Jesus had to die just to invite people to follow a new way, McLaren doesn't explain. I mean, an email could invite, couldn't it? A letter? Just, just come. Come and be changed. And if you don't feel like changing, well, I don't know. I don't think there's any harm done, really. God is love. Just a bit more. Are you still with me? This is Doug Paget in his book called A Christianity Worth Believing. Here's what he says. You know, I'm not sure I would have been interested in the Christian faith if the story on the stage had been about a removed God. Never, never mind the fact that the Bible says God was in Christ reconciling the world. I'm not sure I would have been interested in the Christian faith if the story on the stage had been about a removed God, a removed God who needed to be placated with a blood offering before he was willing to cross the chasm and participate with humanity. In this view, God is not a softy, but a hard-nosed, immovable, infallible judge who cannot abide defiance to the law, and boy, did we defy it. Paget continues, when Adam and Eve broke God's law in the garden, they offended and angered God. So heinous was their crime that their punishment apparently extended to all humanity for all time. The antidote to this situation apparently is the crucifixion of the incarnate Son of God because only the suffering and death of an equally infinite, infallible being could ever satisfy the infinite offense of a dishonored God. Yikes. I could pile up a hundred quotes. I probably read too many already. You get the point. 
it's okay to talk about the cross as long as when you talk about it, all you're seeing is just, well, God's love. That won't make you any enemies. The, the disturbing element, the disturbing element of the New Testament picture of the cross are basically two disturbing elements. The first unacceptable concept to all these progressives is the idea that we are somehow now under God's wrath for our sin. By the way, where we get that would be like John 3:36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. They would all endorse that. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, if I say that, it doesn't matter, but that's what the Bible says. I don't mind being told in some vague fashion that I'm not quite perfect. I get it. But the notion that my sins are eternally consequential, that I'm under God's wrath for my sin, no, not so much. We don't like that anymore. I said there were two unacceptable things. Here's the second. The second unacceptable concept in the New Testament picture of the atonement is that Father God's wrath somehow falls on Jesus in my place. They don't like that. Cosmic child abuse. So, so it's Jesus dying on the cross as my substitute. That's just unfair. What did Jesus do? Those are the troubling aspects of the traditional view of the atonement. And they're increasingly unacceptable among thousands of evangelicals. I believe, wish this wasn't being live streamed. I believe that the word substitution has actually been removed from our denomination's revised statement of fundamental and essential truths. And I think that's a huge mistake. So my question the central question of this series, this will be a long series. Well, it won't be as long as like Galatians or Romans or something like that. But we're going to go through the whole, the pattern of atonement in the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, not picking out a few select verses that suit our case. That's why the title is The Pattern of Biblical Atonement. We'll be in this for 10 weeks. The question that we're going to be looking at, we're just scratching the surface now. What happens, what happens when these two offensive elements of the atonement are left out? Sin is eternally consequential. We are under God's wrath. Jesus dies on the cross, bearing God's wrath in my place. What happens when you take those two elements out of the atonement? Does it matter? And while it takes weeks to flesh it all out, let me tell you my conclusion right now. My conviction is, if you take those two elements out of the atonement, I'm sorry, you don't just get a different emphasis, you get a different religion. You're not talking about Christianity anymore. 
you're not talking about Christianity anymore. You're talking about some other religion. It's a rejigged faith. And God might not be as tolerant of it as we. So I admit, most of the teaching time today has been taken with these introductory quotes and considerations. Here's what's happening. We won't do this again to the same extent. But I, but I wanted to raise the issue. I want everyone to see this isn't a, an exaggerated danger. I'm not making it up. I'm not fighting some kind of straw man here. We are now in a way that very few generations in church history have seen. We are going to be forced, in Jude's word, Jude verse 3, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Note that verb. It's a verb. Contend. It's a New Testament command. So that's, that's what we're interested in. How, how do we find our way through these issues? Exactly how knowable are the exact terms of the gospel? How much stretch should there be in our theology of the atonement? And now I said I have these closing thoughts, so don't panic. Point number one. There's got to be some visitor right now saying, good Lord. <laughs> Point number one. There have always been bright religious people who have distorted the word of God and who should have known better. Jesus encountered them in his day and we encounter them in ours. John 3, 10. And Jesus answered him, are you a teacher in Israel? Yet you do not understand these things. Mark well, Jesus' amazement that one who was charged with the duty of teaching the law of God, His amazement that people who had the duty of teaching the law of God didn't have an accurate understanding of it. You, apparently, according to Jesus, you just can't proclaim any message you want. There's a content to it. It was situations like these that brought some very stern words of warning from Jesus on another occasion. Matthew 15, 1 to 6. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandments of God? Tradition of the elders. Commandments of God. This is what Jesus is interested in. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what would have you would have gained from me is given to God, then he need not honor his father. Now look, I know they're not talking about the atonement here. I get it. But look what Jesus says. So for the sake of your tradition... 
you have made void the word of God. It's those last words that really kind of fascinate me. Religious teachers then and now have always run the danger of allowing their own agenda to cause them to make void the word of God. The agenda, sometimes for power, and that the case was probably that here, sometimes for power, sometimes to make a name, but today, most often for the less obviously sinister desire of, of being more relevant, of having a message that's more digestible to the surrounding culture. Jesus said people can use the very word of God. They can use the words. They know the speak. But they take all the authority out of it when they think it might offend. They still use most of the terms. They refer to the word, but they make it, they make it void. Void. That's the word Jesus used. That means they still have the container of the word but what used to be in it isn't in it anymore. Empty. They make void the word of God. They don't delete it. They still use it. But there's no risk in that gospel. There's kind of a shell of the revelation that used to be there, but not so much for people to get upset about. That kind of situation isn't new. We can watch Jesus confront it and learn. Okay, point number two. Now we're in the home stretch. Jesus responded to such distortions with a mixture of two things, anger and grief. And he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, this is the religious leaders, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. That's all they care about. This guy with this withered hand is going to be healed. And the religious leaders don't care beans. They want to catch Jesus breaking the Sabbath. They're using the word all right, but they've got it all mixed up. Watch to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. We're going to nail him. And he, that's Jesus, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. This is great. And he said to them, Jesus now calls this guy with the withered hand over. And then he looks over at the, the board of deacons. No, it's not. It's the religious leaders, the authorities. And he says to them, is it lawful to, on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? You know, it, that shouldn't be a hard question to answer. They're silent. And he looked around at them, and I said there were two things, remember? They're right in the text anger 
I said grief. Anger and grief are the two things Jesus displayed. He looked at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored. So this is the same group, these people, this is the same group earlier that Jesus said they make void the word of God. Remember, this is the same crowd. And this text is important because at least on this one occasion, we are specifically told what our Lord's inward reaction was to people who make the word of God void. What does Jesus think about that? Not his words, but inwardly. What does he feel? His thought process, what he felt in his holy heart when he saw people emptying the word of its proper content, abandoning truth. Mark says, well, two things. Jesus was angry. Do you ever picture Jesus angry? That's a, it's a problem with us. That you picture him in a kind of a Gandhi-like, angry. You ever seen somebody really angry? Now, do you picture Jesus like that ever? Angry and sad. And I think we need to consider both those reactions quickly. He was angry when truth wasn't preserved and proclaimed. Angry when truth wasn't preserved and proclaimed. It didn't matter whether the crowds loved the religious leaders' words or hated them. That wasn't the issue to Jesus. The point was the teacher's words had to be true. Jesus always embraced truth over popularity. Always. I said there were two things. The second thing, Jesus was angry. But it wasn't a hissy fit. Jesus was angry because, and it relates to that first point, Jesus was angry because these people need to hear the truth, even if they don't like it. It was compassion that made Jesus care about the truth. This was worth being angry about because people needed to hear the truth more than they realized they needed to hear the truth. Somebody had to be willing to speak the truth when it wasn't popular. Jesus was angry when they missed that opportunity. All these teachers, the ones that were making void the word of God, Jesus said they were robbing the people of eternal help. They were robbing the people of hope. They were robbing the people of a chance to repent. Jesus was angry because he knew the Father's heart. He knew it was the job of these religious leaders to deliver God's message. It wasn't their job to edit God's message. It still isn't. So Jesus was angered and he was grieved at their false message. Why grieved? Because he knew these Jewish leaders were also his kinsmen. He loved them deeply. He knew that they not only spread misinformation, but they became victims of their own blindness to the truth. Jesus said so. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. 
Point number three, people have always been drawn to a less offensive message of the cross than the gospel of the wrath-bearing Lamb of God. This is perhaps the most important point. If people in the 21st century find the message of the cross in Stephen Chalk's words, morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. That's what he says. And if that's true, what we need to notice is it was, it was no less so in the New Testament. It was always an offensive message. People never liked hearing it. But we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to the Jews. Folly to the Gentiles. That's everybody, by the way. Jews and Gentiles, that covers everybody. Do you see anybody in that verse liking the message? You can answer me. No. No. Nobody likes it. Paul cautioned about the culturally adapted desire to rescue God's image so that people wouldn't think of him as mean or intolerant. He warned against finding a more palatable approach. In future weeks, we're going to see why this is so. My point right now is that it will always, it will always cost any church to embrace the glory of the cross, to allow it to stand in all of its wrath-bearing, substitutionary glow. There have always been more popular messages. There's always been a more popular cross. It's always been easier to attract fallen minds to a more soothing message. I've always felt guilty that I'm not more of a lover of C.H. Spurgeon than I am. And it's kind of like not liking the national anthem, you know? I mean, it's Spurgeon. I always find him wordy, uh, hard to read. I'm sorry. I read Spurgeon. I've got all of his works. And I say, get to the point, Charles. And then I read this. Now think about everything we've said. Just think about everything we've said about modifying the message of the atonement. Okay? So it's not like bearing God's wrath, Jesus bearing God's wrath. Think of all we've said. Now, here's Charles Spurgeon on a Sunday night. Yeah, they used to have church Sunday night. In 1888. 1888. And here's what he says to his congregation. Of late, I have heard things I never dreamed of before alleged even by professedly Christian ministers against the fundamental doctrines of God's word. Some have even dared to say that the substitution of Christ, his suffering in our stead, is not just, not right. And then they have added that God forgives sins without any atonement, whatever. 1888. Depend on this. Whatever modern philosophy may say, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That is to say, without an atonement, and an atonement consisting of the giving up of a life of infinite value, 
There is no divine passing over human transgression. That's pretty good. In future weeks, we're going to unpack all of this kind of line by line why Spurgeon was right. It's going to be a season Sunday mornings when we're going to just, I know you know it, but we're going to just, we're going to return. We're going to relearn it line upon line over and over again. Why we stay close to the triune God. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And there's still no way to get right with God except by accepting and believing that. Okay? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. It's always been necessary, even when it isn't popular. And so I just pray that at Cedarview Community Church and other churches as well, that there would just be a standing up for divine truth. We have nothing left if these things slip away. We can all just go home. And so give us hearts to love your truth, give us minds to understand your truth, and give us wills to stand up for your truth and never be silent. I ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, <laughs>